Zechariah 9, 1 to 10. We'll study verses 1 to 4, but 1 to 10 for context. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, with Damascus as its resting place. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. And Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza too will writhe in great pain, also Ekron, for her expectation has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited, and a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, and I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. Then they also will be a remnant for our God, and be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns. And no oppressor will pass over them any more. For now I have seen with my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word. We pray that you'll teach us from it how to anticipate your redemption as you pursue us and in righteousness. And we ask, Lord, that you'll also remind us of your judgments, that your judgments are true and righteous, and whatever you do, we ought to believe. Help us, Father, to understand this in reference to your character, your attributes, and may you encourage us and also admonish us by this word. In the name of Christ, amen. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 1. In verse 1, he introduces the subject, this burden that he has. And then in verses 1 to 4, actually verse 1 and 2a, the first part of verse 2, he addresses his concerns of the, the area of the land north of the land of Israel called Syria or Aram, A-R-A-M. And its major cities were Damascus, Hamath, and Hadrach. That's why they are mentioned here in verse 1 all the way to 2 um, in verse 2a. And then he transitions to those cities and kingdoms that were south of Syria. And now he's coming to the coast, the Mediterranean coast, the eastern side of the Mediterranean coast, which is the western boundary of the land of Israel. And he comes to cities Tyre and Sidon. These are cities known both in the Old and in the New Testament. Uh, 
where Christ also uh, performed miracles. And then from there, he proceeds farther south along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea to the cities of the Philistines in verses 5 to 8 or 5 to 7. He continues on to the cities of the Philistines. These are areas, actually, that should have been possessed by Israel when Israel conquered the land of Canaan. Under Joshua, under the judges, during the times of the kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, and all the other kings after them, until the destruction of Judah. This should have been territory belonging to Israel, but it never was. It was never belonging to Israel. And we'll understand it never belonged to Israel because God always kept them in anticipation for the future. The future, because the land of Canaan actually represented or symbolized, typified heaven, according to Hebrews 3 and 4, and even Hebrews eleven eight 8 to 16. This is the reason for God withholding it so that they would never have any kind of solace or false hope, thinking that all the promises were fulfilled and they should only look for this earth. Instead, he kept them in anticipation of the world to come instead of their hope in this world. Okay, we'll cover verses 1 to 4. We start at the beginning of verse 1. He calls his word or his his prophecy, the burden of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord is called a burden, and here it is rendered literally a burden. It appears again, this phrase, the burden, occurs in chapter 12, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Also, in Malachi 1.1, the oracle or the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. This phrase occurs in these three places here in the Old Testament, this full phrase, the burden of the word of the Lord. Others may render it oracle like it is in the New American Standard Bible in Malachi 1.1, but it would be better to render it as a burden because of the heavy load that this word expresses. A burden or heavy load is something of uh, an analogy for the word of God. The word of God is a heavy burden in the sense that it's about to express judgments. It's about to express a rebuke, a strong rebuke, and it is weighty on the heart of the prophet. The prophet cannot but help and speak whatever God says, whether he likes it or not, and whether the hearers like it or not. He must express it because it's a burden to him. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 20, Jeremiah chapter 20, he says, 20 verse 7. Jeremiah 20 verse 7. 7, 7 to 13. O Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. 
Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction, because for me the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. But if I say, I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. For I have heard the whispering of many, terror on every side. Denounce him, yes, let us denounce him. All my trusted friends watching for my fall say, perhaps he will be deceived so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgotten. Yet, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous, who sees, who sees the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have set forth my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the soul of the needy one from the hand of evildoers. This is the kind of burden that he has to share. Now, this burden of the word of the Lord, it's coming from God, not his own interpretation. 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21 says, for no prophecy of scripture was a matter of one's own interpretation, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's especially verses 20 to 21. 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21. And it's against the land of Hadrach. Against the land of Hadrach. Why would God be preaching against foreign nations? Well, he's always been preaching against foreign nations. It's nothing new. In the book of Genesis, did he not preach against Sodom and Gomorrah or warn Sodom and Gomorrah and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah through the testimony of Abraham and Lot, Genesis 18 and 19? In the book of Exodus 1 to 15, did God not warn the land of Egypt and condemn the land of Egypt for not obeying the word of the Lord through Pharaoh? from Moses to Pharaoh. He destroyed them. And even the Canaanites, they were held guilty when Joshua conquered them because of their sins. In Leviticus 18 and 20, their sins are listed. And God was against the Canaanites. He held them accountable. It's not as though God is only now or only in the future holding foreign nations accountable. He always holds them accountable. He always holds everybody accountable whether individuals or nations. And the same here. Hadrach, Damascus, and then also in verse 2, Hamath. These are three major cities. Hadrach is the one that's the farthest north. And then Hamath is below it. And Damascus below it. Going from north to south. Hadrach, the farthest north then Hamath south of it, and then Damascus south of Hamath. And now we're getting closer and closer to, to the land of Israel. This Hadrach, it's only mentioned here in the Old Testament. However, in 
Assyrian sources from about 750 BC, the Assyrian sources, and the Assyrians were ascending about that time because in 722 BC they conquered the land of Israel, the ten tribes of the north. But about the mid-8th century BC or about 750 BC, the Assyrians make mention of this city, Hadrak, in their own spelling, which is Hatarika. H-A-T-A-R-I-K-K-A, Hatarika. They conquered that city, that region. Sometimes it's a, the name of a city and sometimes it's the name of a region, sometimes it's both. Um, for example, Samaria in the north is called, it is the name of the city, but sometimes it's a synonym for the whole nation, the nation of Israel. And even we in English do that, like in American English, New York, are we talking about New York City or are we talking about New York State? Well, it depends on the context. It's used for both. Same here for um, these places. So sometimes they will be referred to as an individual city, as a kingdom, or a territory. Depends on the context. And God is against Hadrach. And Hadrach has Damascus as its resting place. Perhaps he means... By resting place, he means its capital, because Damascus was a very central place and still is throughout history and even today, a very central place for the nation and the peoples who live there because it's an ideal location. It's on the highways. It's in a, on a trade route. It's a very convenient place for there to be a central population and a capital. And many times throughout history, it was a very strong city and powerful city, both militarily and economically. Then he says at the end of verse 1, For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. When he says, For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord, why would he say for? Because... This judgment against these nations, Hadrak and Damascus in verse 1, are for the betterment, are for the blessing, are for the vindication, the vengeance of the people who have been exploited by them. All uh, the eyes of men, especially all the tribes of Israel. They, these powerful kingdoms, would often exploit and conquer other regions and the land of Israel. So now here, God is going to vindicate his name and cause these people who have been exploited to trust in the Lord. It says, the eyes of men, especially all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. Why are they toward the Lord? They are toward the Lord for his mercy. And this is similar to what we find in the Psalms, such as Psalm, Psalm 123, verses 1 to 4. Psalm 123, 1 to 4. Why are the eyes of the tribes of Israel toward the Lord? 123, 1. To you... 
I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he shall be gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord, be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. He compares our relationship to the Lord as the relationship of slave, whether male slave or female slave, to master or mistress. We look to our master in heaven until he shall be gracious to us. We need his grace to be able to live and to do his will. And without the the contempt of the proud, verses 3 and 4, without their contempt and scoffing at us. In this way, we all are the remnant. We are all looking to the Lord or toward the Lord for his compassion. But his compassion toward us has to be, at the same time, his vengeance toward our enemies. His compassion toward us equates to vengeance toward our enemies. How so? Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And verses 3 to 12. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. 3 to 12. The Thessalonians are being persecuted. So verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which, indeed, you are suffering. For, after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our relief from affliction happens when the Lord Jesus returns, and when he relieves us, he at the same time deals out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, verses 7 or 6 to 8. This is also the cry of the faithful in heaven, which means it's not a sinful cry. 
Revelation 6, 9 to 11. Revelation 6, 9 to 11. The faithful pray this before the throne of God. And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. It is a righteous prayer to pray that God would vindicate us, deal out retribution, mete out his vengeance on those who hate us and therefore they hate God. Now, let's proceed with the, the word or the prophecy. Chapter 9, verse 2. He says, And Hamath also, which borders on it. It, it borders on it. Now, when he's speaking this way, he is likely making reference to a river, though he hasn't mentioned the river by name. It is on the Orontes River, O-R-O-N-T-E-S, on the Orontes River. And this was also a prominent city, a prominent place in the days of the Old Testament. And even today, it has a name similar to this. It's called Hama today, H-A-M-A. Before we proceed to talk about these other places, Tyre and Sidon. Let's see where these cities are mentioned and what God says about them. Remember we said at the beginning that these cities were to be conquered by Israel, but they never fully and permanently conquered them. They had conquered them at times, one or the other, but not completely and not permanently, never. These cities were gifted by God to the nation of Israel. We see this first in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, verse 18. Genesis 15, 18. 15, 18 to 21. It's verse 18 that says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. There, in verse 18, he gives a couple of landmarks. The river of Egypt, which is southwest of the land of Israel or Canaan, and then the great river, the river Euphrates, which is northeast of the land of Israel or Canaan. From the southwest... To the northeast, because to the west of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea, and then to the east of Israel is the desert. So that's why he's only mentioning it in this way. And then he says in verses 19 to 21, who all inhabits that region, who will be conquered. And in verse 21, he also mentions the Jebusite, 
the Jebusite, they were the inhabitants of Jerusalem and those mountainous areas around Jerusalem, which is also mentioned in Zechariah 9.7. Ekron like a Jebusite. When we reach that, we'll see what he means by that. But here we see that this was gifted by God to the descendants of Abraham. Further, we see Exodus 23, Exodus 23, 31. Exodus 23, 31. And I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. From the Red Sea, which is south, more directly south of the land of Israel, south and then we have the Sea of the Philistines. This is a unique phrase, the Sea of the Philistines, which would be the Mediterranean Sea, because the Philistines occupy the shore of the eastern Mediterranean. And also the, from the wilderness, from the southern wilderness to the river Euphrates, in the, all the way to the northeast. All of this is a gift to Israel. And then if we see a longer passage on this, we find many, many places mentioned in Numbers 34, 1 to 15. Numbers 34, 1 to 15. We'll just highlight in this passage. 34, 3 says, Your southern sector shall extend from the wilderness of Zin along the side of Edom, and your southern border shall extend from the, the end of the Salt Sea eastward. And then in verse 6, As for the western border, you shall have the great sea, that is, its coastline. This shall be your west border. And the Great Sea is also another name for the Mediterranean Sea. The Great Sea equals the Mediterranean Sea, or Exodus 23:31, the Sea of the Philistines. Um, and then on the north, verse 7, And this shall be your north border. You shall draw your border line from the Great Sea to Mount Hor. You shall draw a line from Mount Hor, verse 8, to the Labo Hamath, and the termination of the border shall be at Zadad, and the border shall proceed from Zephron, and its termination shall be at Hazor Anon. This shall be your northern border, which is also far north. And then the eastern border is mentioned in verse 10, <coughs> verses 10 and 10 to 12. <coughs> and this goes to um, just east um, or on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which is also mentioned there in verses 10 to 12. And then one more place where we see the boundaries mentioned, Deuteronomy 1, 7 to 8. Deuteronomy 1, 7 to 8. Turn and set your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah. 
in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. He's showing it from the south or, yeah, from the southeast, southwest, the seacoast, which would be the Mediterranean or the Great Sea or the Sea of the Philistines, same thing when he says seacoast, the land of the Canaanites, that is the main section, the central part of the land of Canaan, Lebanon. Lebanon is where we're going to read of Tyre and Sidon and some other places. Lebanon, that is how it's also known. There are mountains in that area, and Tyre and Sidon are at the coast or near the coast. Um, And then the great river, the river Euphrates, in the far northeast. This is the land God has uh, bequeathed to Israel. But now his judgment is going to come on them. His judgment against these people but also against Tyre and Sidon. Zechariah 9.2 Tyre and Sidon. These are two major cities along the coast, the Mediterranean coast, the eastern Mediterranean coast, or the, the northwestern part of the land of Israel, or land of Canaan. These cities were also never really conquered or fully conquered by Israel under Joshua, Judges, in the time of the kings. One obvious example, remember when Solomon was building the temple? There was the king of Tyre. He had a a good relationship with the king of Tyre, an alliance with him. And he asked the king of Tyre to send Timbermen and carpenters, masons, because they were very skilled in those trades and they had lots of wood. So that's how they knew what to do. It was a very wooded area, that area of Lebanon or Phoenicia, as it's called as a nation. And from there, um, that's proof that Solomon didn't conquer that area, but he had an alliance with the kings of that area to build a temple. It was never owned by Israel, never owned permanently. At times they would seek to do so, but at times, many times, they could not do so. So Tyre and Sidon are included in this judgment. Why though? Why? Though they are very wise. Though they are very wise. Why does he say though they are very wise? Does he mean it literally or sarcastically? He means it sarcastically. We'll see from other prophets that he means it in a sarcastic way. Perhaps even your Bible has a note on that. Um, The NASB in verse 2 says, that is, they think they are. They think they are wise. So now God is mocking them, being sarcastic with them, because they think they are wise, but they're not wise. Um, speaking of mockery, we will see parallels to Tyre and Sidon in a moment, but we have some of this happening with God himself. 
How about Judges 10, verse 14? Judges 10, 14. Judges 10, 14. The people of Israel are under duress. They are under hardship and slavery, under the weight of foreign rulers. And verse 10, 10, 14. Judges 10, 14. God says to them, Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. Go ahead. You go do that. Don't call, to, call on me. 1 Kings 18, 27. 1 Kings 18, 27. And it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. Elijah mocks them or taunts them. Same thing in this case. Even Christ taunted or mocked his enemies when he said the following. Matthew 23, Matthew 23, 32 to 33. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? How shall you escape the sentence of hell? There's no way. Just So keep on sinning. Just go ahead. Keep on sinning and then bear the punishment of God. The Apostle Paul does so several times in 2 Corinthians. One well-known passage is 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 11, 1. He says, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Why does he call his words to them? Why does he call his letter to them foolishness or a little foolishness? Because they look at it that way. The Corinthians have been deceived by false apostles and they are rejecting the true apostle. So Paul says, okay, you don't think I'm wise? So then just bear with a little foolishness. Just pay attention a little bit to what I'm saying. He really wants them to pay attention a lot. But in order to draw them in, he's using a bit of sarcasm to do so. All right. Now, in reference to Tyre and Sidon, their judgment. We have their judgment in a few places in the prophets. The first one is Isaiah 23. Isaiah 23. You will notice that the prophets, many of the prophets, have segments where they address foreign nations. Isaiah has his own, such as here in Isaiah 23, where he preaches against Tyre, Tyre and Sidon, because often these are cities that are close enough to be addressed together. Tyre, for example, in verse 1, and then Sidon in verse 2, verse 4, so forth. 
like that. Okay, so what is it that they have? What is it that Tyre and Sidon have that is their trust that God will take away from them? Verse 1, the oracle or burden, the burden concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed without house or harbor. It is reported to them from the land of Cyprus. Be silent, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon. Your messengers cross the sea and were on many waters. The grain of the Nile, the harvest of the river, was her revenue, and she was the market of nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, for the sea speaks, the stronghold of the sea, saying, I have neither travailed nor given birth. I have neither brought up young men nor reared virgins. When the report reaches Egypt, they will be in anguish at the report of Tyre. Pass over to Tarshish. Wail, O inhabitants of the coastland, is this your jubilant city, whose origin is from antiquity, whose feet used to carry her to colonize distant places? Okay, we get a sense of what Isaiah is preaching against. He's preaching against Tyre and their trade partners. Tarshish, which is a city on the northern side of the Mediterranean Sea. He's preaching against Cyprus, which is an island to the west inside in the Mediterranean Sea, and also Sidon, and Egypt, verses 3 and 5. He mentions the river Nile and the land of Egypt in verse 5. And what is there? Well, in the northern part of Egypt, which was very fertile, where Joseph brought Jacob and his clan to live at the end of the book of Genesis in Goshen, that was a very fertile area, and There it says they have grain, the grain of the Nile, verse 3. All along the Nile was fertile, but especially in the northern part by the Mediterranean Sea. So whatever they harvested there would be packaged for trade on the sea. And it would be easy to go from there, from northern Egypt, just take a a trip on the Mediterranean and go to the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, go to these coastal cities of Tyre and Sidon. And then you have uh, products to sell to them and lots of money to make. It says in verse 3, she was the market of nations, market of many nations. It was located in a strategic place for trade. But that's all going to be gone, Isaiah says. All gone, all destroyed. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah has similar judgments against her. Jeremiah is a century after Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 49. Actually, Jeremiah 49, 49 is against Damascus. This is what we're reading in Jeremiah 49, 23 to 27. Back up to Damascus, Jeremiah 49, 23. Concerning Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are put to shame, for they have heard bad news. They are disheartened. There is anxiety by the sea. It cannot be calmed. Damascus has become helpless. She has turned away to flee, and panic has gripped her. 
Distress and pangs have taken hold of her, like a woman in childbirth. How the city of praise has not been deserted? The town of my joy. Therefore her young men will fall in her streets, and all the men of war will be silenced in that day, declares the Lord of hosts. And I shall set fire to the wall of Damascus, and it will devour the fortified towers of Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad is the uh, name of a few of the kings of Damascus. Ben-Hadad. So Tyre, Damascus, preached by the prophets that they're going to be destroyed. In Zechariah 9.3, For Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. This is what they did. They were so obsessed with their trade and earning of money, their silver and their gold and their fortress, they thought they were invincible. Nobody could conquer them. However, when the Assyrians came in the 700s BC, they controlled this region. When the Babylonians came, they did so. When the Persians came after the Babylonians, they also did so. But the kingdom that basically completely demolished Tyre and Sidon so that it never rose to prominence again was Alexander the Great in 332 BC and just before 332 BC when his kingdom was established in this part of the world in 332 BC that's when he finally controlled this region of the world and defeated the Persians before him Alexander did when Alexander did that he wiped out these areas and completely weakened them so that they never rose to prominence again throughout history because of Alexander and because Isaiah and Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapters 26 to 28 is a long passage preaching against Tyre and Sidon because they think they are great, they think they are wise, but God's going to destroy them. And he finally did destroy them literally in the time of Alexander. Uh, We said also that we're going to see how wise they are. That Ezekiel, Ezekiel, he mocks them and condemns them for their wisdom. In Ezekiel 28, the three chapters, 26, 27, and 28, all are preaching against Tyre and Sidon. But in 28, we read... Let's see. We'll read 28, 1 to 10. Ezekiel 28, 1 to 10. This will be both their wealth and their wisdom all obliterated by God. The word of the Lord came again to me saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas. Yet you are a man and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired riches for yourself and have acquired gold and silver for your treasuries. 
by your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of God, therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you, the most ruthless of the nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die the death of those who are slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a God in the presence of your slayer, although you are a man and not God? You will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. No, no good trusting in our own wisdom and our own wealth. Human wisdom is futile. And that's the same as here in Zechariah 9, 4. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. The Lord will do it. How did the Lord do it finally? By means of a pagan, the Greek Empire, and Alexander. Alexander the Great. But these destructions should never be taken as mere physical destructions. These are all symbols of eternal destruction. As Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, it wasn't just that they were destroyed physically, but they were destroyed because spiritually they were unbelievers. And therefore they went to hell, according to Jude verse 7. Sodom and Gomorrah as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Jude verse 7. The physical illustrates the spiritual, and the spiritual is more important. They wouldn't repent, so now God punishes them. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.